is all milk kosher. So for those who have purchased kosher for themselves, purchased perhaps for friends or relatives, um, and they've looked for, you've looked for kosher certification on, you wanna make sure it's kosher certified. There are many different kosher certifications on um, items today that you can buy in the supermarkets. We did a class um, some time ago about the industrialization of kosher, which is found on the podcast. So if you purchase kosher, you look for a kosher certification and you'll notice that often it will have the letter D. So it'll have the U in a circle, and that's from the OU, from the um, Orthodox Union's kosher organization, and it'll have a little D next to it. It will have a K in a circle, which is from OK Labs, um, or OK Kosher Labs, and um, it will also will have a D next to it. They even, I think the star K, which is a different kosher certification, even has kind of the star within a D that you know, and the D means dairy. Now, why do they mark that it's dairy? So firstly, you need to know that it's dairy because we're forbidden from eating, mixing meat and dairy. So if it has a D on it, you know that you're not allowed to eat it in your meat meal. If you have chocolate with a D on it, you know that D is dairy. You cannot serve it during your dinner. Not only that, if you ate dinner, you can't eat it afterwards because Jewish law requires us to wait six hours after eating meat before eating any milk. So it's important to know that it's dairy to know whether you're allowed to eat it or not, um, together with milk. However, many people will not eat anything that has the D on it, whether it's a circle U with a D, circle K with a D, unless it also has the words Chalav Yisrael. Chalav Yisrael means Jewish milk. So unless it has those words Jewish milk, many will not eat that, even if they're not eating meat and they haven't eaten meat in the last six hours, they will not eat it even though it's certified kosher with a D um, without the words Chalav Yisrael. What do those words Chalav Yisrael mean? And is the dairy certified kosher good to eat? Is it not good to eat? So that's the question that we're going to try to address. That's what we're going to try to deal with today. So a little background on kosher. The Torah permits us to only eat certain animals that have, they have to have split hooves and chew their cuds. Kosher animals include cows, sheep, goats, deer. We're forbidden from eating animals that don't chew their cud. Chew their cud means they have multiple stomachs. They chew, they swallow, and then they process it in their stomach and they regurgitate it and chew it again. If you ever watched a cow, they're always chewing. And that's because they chew on the same thing. They have four stomachs. They chew on the same thing four times over. So that's called chew the cud um, or ma'ale um, geira in the Hebrew, in the, in the Torah. And so an animal that chews its cud is kosher. Animals that do not, and they also have to have split hooves. The hooves must be split. Um, animals that do not are not kosher. Examples are pigs, horses, dogs, cats, um, are all examples of non-kosher animals. So just as we are forbidden from eating the meat of non-kosher animals, we are also forbidden from eating any products that come from the non-kosher animal. That includes milk coming from a non-kosher animal is forbidden. So pig's milk, dog milk, horse milk would all be forbidden for a Jew to eat. Cow milk, goat milk, sheep milk, or kosher animals will all be kosher. Pretty straightforward. 
You could buy, you could, a Jew can eat cow milk, cannot eat horse milk. Now, during the second temple period, at the time we had the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the supreme council of Judaism. The Torah tells us, uh, Moses made the first Sanhedrin, the first supreme council. We did a class some time ago about the Sanhedrin. Um, and the Supreme Council has the right to legislate, make their own laws as they see fit for Judaism. And the Torah says we are required to follow the rules that the Sanhedrin makes. So during the Second Temple period, and this was a time to put a little, a little historical context, when Greeks controlled the land of Israel, and many Greeks lived in the land of Israel. There was a significant number of non-Jews living within Israel, although Israel was majority Jewish. Um, for much of the Second Temple period, we were under control of non-Jews. First the Persians, then the Greeks, later the Romans. There was a short period with the Hashmonaim, um, where Israel was independent for about 80 years or so. For most of the Second Temple period, we were under control of non-Jews. And a significant minor there was a significant non-Jewish minority living in the land of Israel. So during this Second Temple period, the Sanhedrin made a number of laws, legislated a number of laws that involves food produced by non-Jews. And I'm not going to get into all of the laws. One, some involved food cooked by non-Jews, involving wine um, produced by non-Jews. But among those laws and relevant for us today was a prohibition to drink milk or eat cheese that was created by non-Jews. So drink milk that was milked by a non-Jew or eat cheese that had been made by non-Jews. The Talmud explains... What is the reason for this prohibition? The reason is that we are concerned that non-kosher milk was mixed into the milk. So they sell you cow milk, the non-chief brings you cow milk. Maybe it has some horse milk in it, or maybe some pig milk, or some dog milk. Maybe it's mixed. Same problem with the cheese. Maybe it has some non-kosher milk mixed in. Now, Commentaries explain that the truth is we're never allowed to eat food that a non-Jew gives you or anyone gives you if there's reason to suspect non-kosher food was mixed in. If someone brings you a plate, if they are a Jew that keeps the laws of kosher and knows the laws of kosher and tells you it's kosher, you trust them. We're supposed to trust people unless we have reason not to. That's a standard Jewish law. We always trust people unless we have reason not to trust them. But someone who does not know the laws of kosher, does not keep the laws of kosher, they're not Jewish, they don't know. Um, not well versed in it. They bring you food, they say it's kosher. How do you know it really is kosher? So unless you, have, you know for certain it's kosher, you always suspect that maybe it's non-kosher and you would not be allowed to eat it. So this would be true for all food that was prepared by a non-Jew or someone who doesn't keep the laws of kosher, um, you gotta be careful. And you've gotta make sure that it was, all food prepared should be supervised by a kosher observing Jew, prepared by one. So commentaries therefore say the prohibition against eating, drinking milk that was milked by a non-Jew goes a step further than the standard prohibition of eating anything, any food, 
that you don't know for certain it's kosher. <clears throat> In other words, even when we believe that it's very unlikely that the non-Jew mixed in non-kosher milk. It's very unlikely because there's no non-kosher milk in his, in his fluff or he sells cow milk. That's what he sells. Take him at his word. There's no reason to believe that he mixed anything else in. Why would he? Even so, and therefore, if it would be another food um, and a non-Jew sold it to you as is, that'd be fine. Um, historically, Jews always ate bread produced by non-Jews. That was before bread, when bread was just flour and water. It's not the bread that we have today. Today, we have a lot more ingredients, but Jews always ate bread made by non-Jews um, because it was just flour and water. There was nothing else to put into it. So there was no reason to think there'd be a problem, a kosher problem. So milk would be the same. Why would they put anything else in it? What do they have to gain from that? So even so, our sages created, although there'd be no concern halachically before this legislation, our sages created this concern, particularly with milk that goes beyond the usual concern for food that it might contain non-kosher in. So even if you have no particular reason to suspect that there's non-kosher milk in it, our sages said, even so, if it's milked by a non-Jew, not supervised, you cannot eat it because of the remote possibility there might be non-kosher milk in it. Now, this rule was made by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism. Since it was legislated, we are required to follow it, like all rules made by the Sanhedrin. Um, and um, we are required to follow it since the Torah commands us, one of our 613 commandments, is to follow laws legislated by the Sanhedrin. Now, once legislated by the Sanhedrin, only the Sanhedrin can overturn their own legislation. Even then, there are a lot of, it, it, unlike our, our legal system today, <clears throat> in Jewish law, the legal system that we had, when the Sanhedrin legislated, <clears throat> it was very difficult to overturn legislation. It wasn't just a matter of voting it back to the way it was it was somewhat complicated to overturn legislation. However, today we have no Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was disbanded around the 300s. The Sanhedrin had to sit in the land of Israel. Jews were exiled from the land of Israel. We were persecuted. And um, there weren't enough Jewish scholars in Israel to keep the Sanhedrin running um, after Rome ad adopted Christianity and increased its persecution on Jews. Um, <clears throat> and so the Sanhedrin was disbanded in the 300s. We have not had a Sanhedrin for the last 1,700 years. So all the laws legislated by the Sanhedrin, we have no way to overturn them, to repeal them. So today, without a Sanhedrin, this law stands. It cannot be overturned, even if we disagree with its premise. Even if all the scholars of Israel today were to disagree with its premise, it cannot be overturned unless we were to recreate a Sanhedrin. And even if the circumstances that led to it are no longer relevant, the law still cannot be overturned. So as a result, the law stands today that for milk to be kosher, it needs to be milked by a non-Jew. But it doesn't need to actually be milked by a non-Jew. The Talmud says that a Jew doesn't have to do the milking. It's enough for a Jew to supervise the milking. 
In fact, Talmud goes further. Even if a Jew is sitting in the room, they don't have to actually be looking at the cow and at the fellow who's milking it, the person who's milking it at the moment they're milking it. Even if they're sitting nearby, that's considered supervision. They're there, they're in the room, keeping an eye on what's going on. They don't actually have to be looking at it at the time of the milking. They just have to be right there nearby. Even further, they don't even have to be in the room. They just have to be there, nearby, close enough that they can walk in and out at any moment. To the extent that in Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, it discusses um, common scenario back in the old country when we lived in the shtetl, and of course then you could not go to the store and purchase a bottle of milk. They didn't sell milk in the store. Um, there was no refrigeration, so milk wouldn't last more than a day. Um, so they, they didn't sell milk in the store. Rather, the way people got milk was everybody had a cow in their backyard and they would milk their own, that ate their grass and they would milk their own cow. That's what everyone did. Um, and so the, in the Code of Jewish Law, it says, if so, it discusses people had non-Jewish housekeepers. Can you send your non-Jewish housekeeper outside the backyard to milk your cow and bring in the milk in the morning? And the Shulchan Aruch says that's not a problem because you're right there, you're in the house. And so that's considered supervised. So supervised doesn't mean you actually have to watch it, but you have to be there, you have to be nearby. Um, it has to be under supervision where they know that you can walk by at any time to see what they're doing. But if there is no Jewish supervision, there's no Jew nearby who is just a Jew being nearby, but who doesn't take the role as a supervisor also doesn't help. Uh, no Jew nearby who is supervising the milking of the cow, even if the non-Jew who is milking the cow is 100% trustworthy. They're your best friend and your business partner who you gave your life savings to. Even so, and, he, and they say it's 100% it's cow milk. Even so, because of the legislation of the Sanhedrin, the milk may not be eaten or drunk. Any products of that milk may not be drunken, may not be eaten either. It's considered non-kosher. The Jew was not supervising the milk, even from a distance, a Jew, there was no supervision. Even if you know that non-Jew to be the most honest person on earth and you trust them with your life, even so, Torah, the, this legislated law, what we call rabbinic law, the law made by the Sanhedrin in the days of the second temple prohibits us from drinking such milk and it would not be considered kosher. Not because we think this non-Jew is lying or because we dislike them, they can be our best friend, but because the Sanhedrin forbade us from drinking such milk and we must follow their laws. Any questions? Okay, hi. Um, well, you said that a Jew would have to be present or only a Jew can milk the cow, only Jews can prepare food that other Jews eat. But some Jews, maybe, do you only have to be Jewish um, by birth and not really be a practicing Jew? <laughs> or do you have to be a practicing Jew? That's a very good question. Um, that question is hotly debated by scholars today. Um, what that law would be. Um, so I don't have a straight answer for you. Okay. Thank you.
Yes, Louis. Um, maybe a little tangential, but you brought up an interesting uh, subject. You said no laws can be changed because we don't have a Sanhedrin for the last 1700 years. What is to prevent us from having Sanhedrin? That is an excellent question. Um, this, a few issues. Um, there's actually a number of books written on the subject. Uh, but the biggest issue is that we don't have the smicha, which is the tradition of ordination that was passed down from Moses that could only be given within the land of Israel. So once we no longer had scholars in Israel, we couldn't pass on this smicha. Um, there's some debate as to whether we could recreate it from scratch. Um, the, the, perhaps one of our great challenges today would be reaching consensus and building a Sanhedrin, um, which Jews have trouble reaching consensus. Uh, there have been individuals who have tried to make a Sanhedrin um, in recent years and even a couple hundred years ago to reconvene it, um, but unsuccessful. And there are some still attempting to do so today. When did that Sanhedrin um, begin? With Moses. With Moses. With Moses, okay. And it continued until about the 300s, about 1700 yeah. years ago. Yes. And how many people were on it? Uh, 71. 71 oh. senior members, and then there were a number of junior members. Okay. We did a class on the Sanhedrin sometime. Yeah, I mean, I took the class, but I forgot. Okay. That's okay. Um, so back to our subject of milk. So, um, <laughs> so now, so Jewish law, as we said, um, based on this legislation of the Sanhedrin, forbades us from drinking any milk that was not either milked by a Jew or supervised or a non-Jew who milked it with under supervision of a Jew. And this is even if you trust the non-Jew, it was originally made because we, this, our sages were afraid that the non-Jew would mix in non-kosher milk. Um, and uh, however, that law applies even if the reason doesn't apply. So even if we trust the non-Jew 100%, um, we still consider it, um, we still need the milk to be milked by, uh, to be supervised by a, non, by a Jew. If not, the milk is considered non-kosher. Now in the 17th century, is the 1600s, there were some European Jewish scholars who pointed out that it is no longer common for people to use milk from animals other than cows and goats. Well, maybe earlier in Second Temple period, people drank horse milk or milk from other animals. Um, today, it's unheard of. This is today, 400 years ago. It was unheard of. Who drank milk other than cow milk and goat milk? Well, that's all that was used. Nobody used any other milk. Nobody drank um, horse milk. Nobody drank dog milk. So they suggested, and one scholar in particular, one renowned scholar in particular suggested that, well, given that the whole issue falls away because there is no such thing as non-kosher milk anymore, um, so the law would just fall away by itself because uh, we don't have non-kosher milk. However, most scholars at the time disagreed with this perspective and said, no, you know, once, um, even though there is realistically no non-kosher milk in circulation nowadays, this is 400 years ago, and I'm pretty sure the same is true today, 
you'd be hard pressed, maybe some exotic stores, but you'd be hard pressed to find milk on the shelf that's not cow milk or goat milk. Even goat milk's hard to find, but you could get it. Goat cheese is easier. Um, but you'd be hard pressed to find um, any other form of milk anywhere. So um, most scholars, however, believe that this still does not remove the prohibition against milk that was milked by non-Jews, that was unsupervised. Because once the rule was made as a legislation by the Sanhedrin, the legislation cannot be changed, even if the circumstances change and the reasons are no longer relevant. The legislation still stands. So though there is no such thing anymore as non-kosher milk, I mean, you could get, you could produce it in theory, but in reality, nobody makes non-kosher milk anymore. Even so, or milk from non-kosher animals, even so the rule that the milk must be supervised by a Jew stands and remains, and milk that was not supervised by a Jew remains non-kosher or cannot be eaten. Now, in the late 1800s, Jews came to the United States in very large numbers. And now Jews, as they came to the United States and to England with, um, and parts of Western Europe and to a lesser extent, they had a milk problem. In Europe, most Jews lived in the shtetl, and same was in the Middle East. They lived in the small towns. In the towns, we weren't mostly farmers. We were mostly small businessmen, craftsmen, um, but we lived in towns. In the towns, everybody had a cow in their backyard and everyone produced their own milk. Even in the larger cities where, where, that were more urban, in the late 18th century, there were already larger cities in Europe um, Jews, where Jews lived, um, were more urban, there wasn't really room for a backyard with a cow. People didn't have cows, um, but there were towns nearby with Jews that, you know, people had a few cows and they would bring their milk, bring their milk every morning to town to sell it to the, to the city, to sell it to the city folk. So it was very easy to get kosher milk, milked by a Jew. However, coming here to the United States, most Jews were urban. Almost all Jews settled in cities, all the big, mostly in New York and Philadelphia and Boston, Baltimore, Chicago, um, St. Louis, um, eventually Los Angeles, all over the United States, but they were almost all in big cities. In the urban United States, nobody had animals. Nobody had their own cow in their backyard. You, you, people lived in the tenements in the Lower East Side. There was no room to have a cow. You needed to get milk. Now, milk in the United States by then was already factory produced. In other words, there were large factory farms, big farms, that produced milk commercially. We had refrigeration, or at least an early form of refrigeration back then where they would have the big ice cases. They would have these big pieces of ice um, that they'd stick in one side and on the other side there was the refrigerator. Um, they had a, at least a primitive form of refrigeration and they would sell milk. So the problem was for urban Jews, all these big milk companies here in the United States were all owned by non-Jews, managed by non-Jews, workers were all non-Jewish. Now, which Jew would want to go work on a milk farm? So um, as a result, the milk was all unsupervised. So you couldn't get kosher milk here in the United States. It was a big problem. In New York, there was a very large Jewish community. Some Jews, um, entrepreneurial Jews, 
um, started their own milking um, their own milking factories to be able to provide kosher milk to Jews that wanted kosher milk. Most Jews couldn't get it. And as a result, Jews in the United States who tended to be lax in observance regardless um, for other reasons, mostly just drank the milk in violation of the prohibition of the Sanhedrin's prohibition. However, there were many religious Jews who were very concerned about it. Some who didn't drink milk, but it, it's problematic. You don't drink milk. Um, for adults, it's not that big a deal, but for children, um, it's not good for their development. Children need milk. They need the nutrition, they need the calcium. And this is before they had all the fake milk options that we have today. So in the 1930s, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and by then the traditional, or the religious community in, in, um, in this country had grown, particularly outside of the New York, which was the main center of Jews here in the United States at the time. Um, many Jews had this problem of getting kosher milk. Some went themselves to farms, farm their, their own milk. I know people who did that um, went themselves. They had to kind of a deal with, their, with a farmer. They could go milk their own milk and they'd go once a week and then hope the milk will stay for, um, pasteurize it themselves and hope the milk will stay for a week. Um, so um, in the 1930s, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the leading halachic scholar of the United States in the 20th century, issued a ruling allowing drinking of milk and milk products here in the United States, even if they were not supervised by a Jew. And he argued as follows. Although the milk has no Jewish supervision, there is in this country government regulations. In other words, because we have the FDA and the, Federal Drug, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, and they have been supervising food production in this country since the late 19th century, and all food production is heavily regulated. And what exactly you put in the milk is also regulated. You're not allowed to put in cow milk anything other than cow milk. And if you do, there are severe fines. You could lose your license. You could be fined. So the regulations are the equivalent to supervision. That was his argument. And therefore, that same supervision required by our sages does not necessarily mean a Jew has to supervise, but government supervision effectively does the same. He wrote this as what we call a heter. Heter means a rule where we allow a practice in a challenging situation based on somewhat of a weak argument. But because we're in a challenging situation, we accept a weaker argument that normally we would not follow in halacha in Jewish law. But because of the challenges we're facing, we're more lenient. And so he wrote that if possible, people should avoid drinking milk that was not supervised by a Jew. But in those towns outside of New York where you could not buy non-kosher, uh, you couldn't buy milk, chal of Yisrael, milk supervised by a Jew, and people had children at home that needed milk um, for their development, and they were unable to go out of town to go to a farm every week and milk their own milk. Um, in such a scenario, they can rely on this leniency, on this argument, and drink the milk um, produced here, the, the, the milk um, sold in the stores. 
Now, most scholars at the time, um, when the, this ruling first came out and since, have disagreed with this argument. It's a fairly weak argument. Firstly, the rule that the Sanhedrin made was that a Jew needs to supervise the milking. The government is not Jewish. Their supervision, to suggest that their supervision is classified as, Jew, as equivalent to a Jew supervising is somewhat of a stretch. Now, to be clear, Moshe Feinstein actually was a great, great Talmudic Torah scholar. And uh, he wrote a very, very long um, explanation showing evidence elsewhere where we find regulation equivalent to supervision. But um, most scholars felt that it's not the same. Uh, they also pointed out that the enforcement of regulations by our Food and Drug Administration in this country tends to be fairly weak, something that was true back then and remains true today. Um, uh, the, the enforcement is not all that great. Um, they don't send inspectors down all that often. Inspectors are often part of the business um, and working with the companies and um, it's mostly a revolving door. And uh, so it's, it's, not, um, it's not that great, our, our regu regulatory regime, regardless, to say that we can rely on it and consider it equal to supervision. But Ramosha Feinstein is held by his heter, or by his argument that in, when necessary, one can rely on this and drink milk that was not supervised by a Jew here in the United States, relying that the regulations are the equivalent of the supervision. Louis, you had a question? Yes. <clears throat> so, Rabbi, I, 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 and I understand, you know, you say, okay, you open up the door a crack, you open it up all the way. By that same logic, using Rabbi Feinstein's heter, why can't you also say that wine, which is not touched by people at all, has government supervision? Why can't you say wine is kosher? Excellent question. It's really a subject for kosher wine, which I think we have scheduled to um, do in a future class um, later this year. Um, but the, the reason for the kosher rule with milk um, was because of supervision to ensure that there was no non-kosher milk in it. Although today, as we mentioned, there is no non-kosher milk. We still need the supervision. Um, wine is very different. Wine, the reason for the prohibition of wine um, was in order to keep um, Jews from socializing too much with our non-Jewish neighbors. And it's really a discussion of its own, but it's a totally different reason. So th th that argument wouldn't work for why. So today, most kosher certifications in the United States, the major ones, the Orthodox Union's kosher arm, which is that circle U, um, okay, Labs, which is OK Kosher, which is um, the circle with the K in it, um, the star K, which is, um, and the Chaf K, those are the four large ones in the country right now. Um, they all accept milk that was not supervised by Jews as kosher, relying on Rabbi Feinstein's heter, or on his argument um, for, for when one cannot get anything else. So they will certify things as kosher if it has milk that was produced by non-Jews, not supervised by a Jew, simply relying on the government re regulation as being the equivalent. That rule, as we said, is highly questionable. 
Uh, most scholars disagreed with it. And so many Jews who keep kosher will not eat it unless it is certified as being chalav Yisrael, Jewish milk, which means it was supervised by a Jew. Now, to be clear, today, unlike the way it was in the 1940s when Rabbi Feinstein wrote his um, original heter um, or earlier, today, all milk has additives in it. Preservatives, milk has preservatives, so it doesn't go bad straight very quickly. That's why they last for so long. Um, they, have, they often have other things within them. Um, and so because milk today has additives, they still need to be supervised as kosher. You can't go to the store and just buy any milk. You've got to know what went into that milk. When milk was only plain milk, you could go to the store and buy milk. There's nothing else in it. Today, nothing is plain anymore. Everything has something added to it, or almost everything. There's very few things that are plain. And so, including milk. Milk generally has additives. So it needs to be supervised as kosher. The same is, of course, for all milk products. Cheese definitely has additives, all cheeses, um, chocolates for sure. Um, so all milk products have additives. So they need kosher certification. The kosher certification is done usually in commercial settings by checking ingredients lists. Because commercial settings um, have very strict rules, both for their, own, um, for their own books and for regulators, where they need um, to track every food item that comes into the factory um, and what's used where. Um, so by checking the ingredients lists, it's very easy for kosher organizations to establish exactly what's going into the factory and make sure that there's only kosher ingredients going in. And then they don't rely on the regulators, but they regularly spot check. And that's enough. You could spot check and you can see straight away if um, kind of random inspections is enough to tell usually with big companies whether they're cheating or not. So that's usually how kosher certification works for most commercial items, including milk production, cheese, chocolates um, that are produced commercially in large factory settings. So, um, so as a result, everything that one buys that's a milk product, milk itself or a milk product, needs to be certified as kosher to ensure that there's no non-kosher ingredients going into it. But just because it's certified as kosher, that doesn't mean that the milking itself was actually supervised by a Jew. Um, and generally, if it has the circle U with a D or the circle K with a D or the D with a star and a K inside, um, Generally, it is not supervised by a Jew. It is, they're certifying that all the ingredients are kosher, and they're certifying that it's kosher if one were to rely on the heter, on the um, argument of Ramosha Feinstein. So anyone who eats kosher today must make sure that the product is certified, but many are careful that even once it's certified to only eat milk or milk products that are halav Yisrael. And usually it will add the words next to the kosher symbol. It will say the words chalav Yisrael, Jewish milk. If it was produced, if the milk itself, if you're drinking milk itself, that was supervised by a non-Jew, by a Jew, or um, a milk product that has milk in it that was supervised by a Jew, it will say the words chalav Yisrael on it. And so here at the JCC, our policy is we only allow Chalav Yisrael products here into our community center. 
since many of the people in the community will only eat food that is Chalav Yisrael, and we don't want you know, we don't want them accidentally to eat food that is not. Um, and so therefore we're very careful over here and many community centers are for that reason, careful the same way. Um, most kosher restaurants are, dairy restaurants will be Chalav Yisrael. They'll usually see it on the certification. We'll say Chalav Yisrael, uh, but not most products that you buy in the store with the D on it, with the kosher certificate and the D certification and the D on it, um, unless it says so is generally not Chalav Yisrael meaning it was not supervised by a Jew, it rather is relying on, they were, are relying on the government regulations as being the equivalent of Jewish supervision. The Torah's laws are very complex, as we can see, and debates have arisen between scholars over the years as with this issue of whether we could rely on, rely on government regulation today to be the equivalent of Jewish supervision. And the truth is we could really divide Jewish law into three areas, our commandments. There are law, things that are definitely permitted. Torah allows us to do it. There are things that are definitely forbidden. Certain foods are definitely forbidden. Um, there are things that are absolutely forbidden. And then there's the gray area where there is debate. So the unsupervised milk that was not supervised by a Jew falls into the third area, the gray area. In other words, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says that if one has, if that's all one can get and one doesn't have a choice, um, one can rely on that, rely on the government supervision and one can eat it. One can eat this milk or milk product that was not supervised by a Jew today in the United States. However, many scholars disagree and say, no, that's, we cannot rely on that. Um, it's not the government's supervision. The government regulation is not as good as Jewish supervision. That's not what our sages meant. And so uh, one cannot eat it. And so what should one then do? So because this is the gray area, one has choice. It's always better, it's always better to keep God's laws in the best possible way, follow all the different views. It's not always realistic. So for those who are starting on their kosher journey, or for those that find it very hard to find chalav Yisrael, milk that was produced by a Jew, um, they should begin by taking the more lenient view, Rabbi Feinstein's view, and drink the milk, kosher certified, but that did not have Jewish supervision. Those who can should take a more stringent view, particularly in Chalav Yisrael, which we said most scholars say does need to be supervised today. So if you find it difficult, or if you're starting on your kosher journey, definitely rely on the more lenient view, take drink the milk that is supervised kosher, the milk products, eat the milk products that are supervised kosher, um, but did not have Jewish supervision in the milking. But if you can, it's always better to take the more the stricter view, particularly here, where most scholars were of believed that one that it does need to be supervised by a Jew. Here in the South Bay, we are somewhere in between, in that you cannot buy kosher milk anywhere here in the South Bay. Unfortunately, not yet. 
They don't, sorry, you cannot buy, my, take that back. You, can, you cannot buy Chalav Yisrael milk anywhere here in the South. You can buy kosher supervised milk. Um, a lot of the milks they sell, Trader Joe's and other stores are kosher supervised, have kosher certification, but you cannot buy Chalav Yisrael milk um, here in the South Bay yet. Um, however, luckily, we're not like other cities that are far away from any kosher. We do have about a half hour drive from here on the west side. You can get, there's no shortage of Chalav Yisrael. It's very easy to get and Chalav, and milk, and Chalav Yisrael milk products. And uh, one of the stores on the west side, Western Kosher, delivers down here to the South Bay. So if you can, definitely try to only eat Chalav Yisrael. Only eat milk that was supervised by, and drink milk that was supervised by a Jew. However, if you find it difficult to go to the west side and get the milk, find it difficult to, um, find it difficult to rely on weekly deliveries, um, then definitely by all means, you can rely on Rabbi Feinstein's Petter on his argument and drink the milk or the milk products that are kosher, supervised as kosher, certified as kosher, but were not supervised by a Jew. Are there, um, do they have their own special like dairies? Um... Yeah, so today, thankfully, things have changed from the 1940s. Um, when outside of New York, you could not get Chalav Yisrael. And even in New York, not every neighborhood had it. Um, today, you can get Chalav Yisrael everywhere. I mean, in every major city, any major Jewish community has Chalav Yisrael. Every kosher store in the country yeah. sells Chalav Yisrael. But... Um, my grandfather lived in Chicago uh, for many years, and um, my grandparents, and in Chicago, you couldn't get Chal of Yisrael. New York, you could, but not in Chicago. Um, and so in the 1950s, I think this was already, um, he decided to organize kosher milk. Oh. So he went himself to a farm and would supervise the milking. Once so every week, he would supervise the milking and he would get a truckload. He would rent a truck every week, get a truckload of milk from this milking that he would supervise every Sunday, drive it into town, bring it to one of the kosher stores, um, and then they would sell it um, or deliver it to other people that wanted it. So, um, and he provided kosher milk for the Chicago Jewish community. Um, in fact, when I was a child, and I, I'm not that old, um, this is going back to the 1980s, uh, where I grew up in Melbourne, um, it was hard to get Chalav Yisrael milk. Uh, and there was a fellow um, in the community at the time, since past, who did the same thing. Every Sunday, he would go to a farm and would supervise the milk production. And he would come back with these pails of milk. And um, I was when I was probably about five or six when they first, when they started producing Chalav Yisrael milk in Australia. Today, you could get, there's no shortage of it. Uh, but then there was, and I have these, you know, you, recollections from my childhood that he would bring these pails every week of milk and my mother would have to pasteurize it herself. She had these big pots um, where she would cook the milk and then skim off the top, the um, skim off the top to make cottage cheese, and she would do it all herself. Um, but I mean, that was when things were not readily available. Today, um, in just about every Jewish community in the world, um, you can easily buy chalav Yisrael milk. Um, every large Jewish community. 
there are places that are somewhat remote where you can't get them. You can't get it. Well, do they have um, like their own processing plants now? There are. There's 100% kosher processing plants. Yes. Okay. There definitely are. Um, there's here in California, they produce kosher Chalav Yisrael milk. Okay. You know, Western Kosher produces it and sells it in the stores. Um, so that, yeah, it's, it's um, they have processing plants in the larger communities. Smaller communities will just kind of lease it once a week um, for a once a week milking. Um, and then, you know, just sell that under their own label. Um, but yeah, it's, um, they do have fully kosher processing plants. And, you know, there's, today there's lots of kosher food companies that are, you know, just focus on kosher foods. Um, and many of them produce cheeses and, um, you know, there's no shortage of kosher cheeses, um, various types and um, other milk products, kosher chocolates. Um, they're, they're, there's no shortage of them. Um, you probably can't buy most of them in the Ralphs or the local grocery stores, but the kosher stores sell. So before there was formula, people, baby formula, people gave their babies to wet nurses, right? You couldn't nurse or you chose not to nurse. Um, people gave their babies to wet nurses. So Ramoshi Israelis was the, um, a 16th century scholar from Krakow, the um, greatest scholar in Eastern Europe of his day, and considered often the father of Eastern European halacha. He writes that one should not allow their babies to be fed by non-Jewish wet nurses. Why? Though they're children, they're babies, we are forbidden from giving non-kosher food to babies. However, human production, mil human milk is not considered non-kosher from a Jew or a non-Jew. So technically, the milk of a non-Jewish wet nurse would be kosher. However, he says, the non-Jewish wet nurse herself is eating non-kosher food. So her milk is being produced by non-kosher food. And so though halachically it would be permitted, however, we have a tradition that non-kosher food, the wording he uses is, blocks the person's heart and mind from connecting to God. So it has a negative impact on one's soul. You are what you eat. The food that you eat becomes cells in your body. Non-kosher food impacts a person's body and impacts their soul and makes it harder for the individual to connect to God. And therefore, he says, since this non-Jewish woman is eating non-kosher food, her food, her milk is produced by non-kosher food. If you then feed your baby that non-kosher food, although halachically permitted, it will cause a negative impact on the child's soul. And therefore, you should not do it. Which teaches us something very powerful about non-kosher in general. Not only are we forbidden from eating it, it impacts our soul. It makes it harder for us to connect to God. In fact, People would ask the Rebbe about children who were uninterested in Judaism, did not want to go to Jewish school, or had trouble studying Judaism. And the Rebbe would respond that they need to be careful with the kosher laws. Because non-kosher food makes it hard for the child to connect to God. Not that they cannot. Anyone can. Everybody has free choice. But it makes them more difficult. Because non-kosher food blocks the soul. 
from connecting to God. And so therefore, it's really important. Um, the Rebbe would particularly say people should be careful that their children only eat chalav Yisrael, milk supervised by a Jew, even though Rabbi Feinstein permits milk that wasn't supervised by a Jew here in the United States. Um, but the Rebbe would say people should be careful with chalav Yisrael, with Jewish milk, milk supervised by a Jew in order for their children, in order that it shouldn't harm their souls. And so because we are what we eat, it's important that we are very careful about what we eat. Not only is it a Torah law that we have to eat kosher food, not only is that part of our 613 commandments, but also it becomes who we are. We are the food we eat. When we eat non-kosher food, that non-kosher food is considered, um, Kabbalah tells us that non-kosher food um, has klipa or shell, non-kosher powers, not bad powers, evil powers within it. That then sticks to our, becomes part of our body and sticks to our soul, blocking us from connecting with God. So therefore, what we eat is really, really important. And even if we're not careful, perhaps with other commandments, kosher is something we should be really careful about particularly if we want to have a close relationship with God. So if you don't keep kosher yet, I would encourage you to start. Start with baby steps. Start by only buying kosher meat. Today you can get kosher meat in Trader Joe's. Start, then you can order it from the West Side if you want more sophisticated cuts of meat. Um, from, there's, a organization, there's a company called Western Kosher. Their website's westernkosher.com if anyone needs it. Um, and they deliver here to the South Bay every Tuesday. Um, you could order online and uh, they'll deliver here. You can get kosher meat. Um, you buy kosher meat, buy only kosher foods. Make sure everything in your home is supervised as uh, has is certified as kosher. If you keep kosher ready, be more careful about it. Add on further levels of kosher, like keeping chalav Yisrael. But it's important that we're very careful with what we eat. We have to remember we are what we eat. And we believe that what we eat really impacts us and our souls. And so um, hopefully this inspires you all to, and myself too, to take extra care with what we eat. I think it's not only good for our souls, but it's also good for our um, character, um, kosher, because today we have a whole movement. Everyone's checking the label on what they eat. They want to see how many calories are in it. And everyone has, they don't want to eat, um, they, they, they don't want to eat grains and they don't want to eat carbs and, People are very careful, I don't eat this and I don't eat that. Um, but it's really a powerful thing. We shouldn't just put things in our mouth. Just because we see it, we like it, put it in our mouth. We should check what's in it. Limit what we eat. We only eat certain things. We check what's in everything that we eat before we eat it. We check before we bring it into our kitchen, we check it. Make sure it's kosher. Make sure it fits us. So I encourage you all to start or add in your kosher consumption and uh, if you can, add also in Chalav Yisrael, making sure to be careful with milk supervised by a Jew. I thank you for joining us. I hope you will join us next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the Torah's command to destroy Amalek. The Torah commands us we should destroy a nation, uh, wipe them out, a nation called Amalek. And we'll, we will talk about that, God willing, next week. I'll open it now to any questions or comments, if anyone has.